Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. (laughs) And we are so excited to be here today with Rachel Howard. Welcome. Thank you. And I'm just going to read your bio from the book jacket of your new novel, The Risk of Us, your debut novel, Um, just so folks have a little context. And it is this. Rachel Howard earned her MFA in fiction from Warren Wilson College and is the author of a memoir, The Lost Night. She is the recipient of a McDowell Colony Fellowship, and her fiction essays and dance criticism have appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Waxwing, and elsewhere. She lives in Nevada City, California. So, which is not a big city, so putting that right out there, someone could just be like, hey... Yeah, I know. I, I probably shouldn't say more about that either. I live in a pretty prominent place in the town of 3,000 people. So definitely come find me. <laughs> yes, I love Nevada City. Our listeners are not creepers, though, so oh. there's that. <laughs> okay, too. I'll tell you my address. So what are you working on, Elizabeth? Uh, so I am revising um, to some notes and... Um, Really, I've been reverse engineering my uh, my why now moment in my novel. So that's turned out to be a very intense thing to like go back and figure out. Like once my character's on the journey, she's on this great journey. But but why now? Has when I ripped out you know <laughs> a, a supporting wall from my structure, uh, you know, replacing it has been really challenging. But I I think I have an idea, and I'm actually meeting with my. Um, informant in the, it's not, it's not called like cold cases, but she's in the Santa Rosa Police Department and she works on cases that are what we would call cold cases and um, forensic stuff. Anyway, so she's been really helpful. So I'm going to meet with her today. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what are you working on? Um, well, as mentioned previously, I am prepping for Sonoma County Writers Camp and my stand-up little moment there. Angie's going to do a stand-up, which, stand-up comedy. <laughs> which may evolve into, like, you know, a TED Talk. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the assignment is that it be entertaining and that our, our uh, sort of overly addled and wine-soaked brains not be overly challenged and yes. late at night. Yeah, it turns out lectures after dinner and wine are not the time to get into complex uh, discussions of transition and uh, the differences between. So, um, so I'm actually working on that. But the I just saw this guy who is doing a hundred videos in a hundred days challenge, and so I really don't have that kind of stamina. But I will be doing videos in three days. Well, what I thought I would do. right? Um, it's actually, as I develop that piece, I'll do a video from each portion of my process. So between Ooh. now and before I go do the actual performance, I will be doing my development process as, as a video. Like a documentary about the making of your stand-up comedy. Act. Right. In, in three-minute chunks. So there you go. <laughs> cool. Rachel, What I know your, your book launched this week, uh, this is going to come out on Tuesday, so I guess technically it'll be last week. But um, 
so you're probably mostly immersed in that, but tell us what you're working on, including. No, no, I'm actually, I am really in the middle of something. So um, I, yeah, I had a book out before it's been 13 years <laughs> and I think I've learned a few things in between and, and, you know, the last time, I mean, you probably know what this is like Elizabeth from having your first book come out. Like sometimes in the ups and downs of the release process, you can get into such a brain spin that by the end of the month, you're on the floor crying and you don't know why. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe, I'll be there still in a month from now, but um, this time I feel a lot more balanced because I decided to just keep working steadily on something and to build in days in between events where I can be in touch with my writing. So I was working last night. Um, I'm working on a memoir about learning how to sing at a dive piano bar in Alley and in Oakland called the Alley. Um, we're actually having a book party tonight. Yay! (laughs) It's, it's kind of at one point in my life, it was kind of almost my living room. I was there like five nights a week Mm. and, um, never used to sing before I started going there and hanging out with this piano player named Rob Dibble who played there for 57 years. Um, he actually died two years ago. And so that made writing the memoir more urgent. Um, so I worked on it all last year. I got like a 300 page draft and my agent looked at it. Loved a lot about it, and it's on board, so that's encouraging. And then it's also, like, needs some serious restructuring and stripping down. So I'm, uh, I've am i done that to the first 100 pages, all of part one. Um, and now I'm keeping the faith and moving on with uh, part two under this restructuring. Just a lot of pieces to move around and play with. It's uh, kind of a fun point to be at and kind of intense when you're like not the freedom of the original drafting but I still relate to what you were saying about finding your why now moment again and having it rebuilt that back into your story I would love to hear that because my um my first book you know my memoir about my my father's unsolved murder um that was one of the last editing steps um after actually had done one path no actually okay no that was before there was one time where they came back and they're like oh we thought we were done but actually we're going to move publication date by six months so that you can bring out these other elements (laughs) 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 which actually i was thrilled by because when they showed them to me i was like oh yeah that could be better and thank god you said something and i have the six months to do it now um but one of the last elements was finding out why, you know, why is Rachel Howard now ready to look back at the past of her father's murder and why is this urgent for her now? Mm. And um, the, <laughs> the why now prompt that the editor landed on was that I had just gotten engaged and I was going to get married. And I think that was a factor because I did like have the security then to look more at the murder. But um, unfortunately, even at that moment that she decided to build that into the opening of the book, I already had an inkling that I was going to get divorced. (laughs) Were you actually married by then or were you still just engaged? Uh, We were married. We had been married like a year at that point. And as soon as she said it, I thought, oh no. (laughs) Did you you use it? I did. It's still, I mean, of course, right? That's the thing. Getting, it could still be that moment. It doesn't mean you have to stay married forever just because that kicked you into here. Did you emotionally agree or did it make sense to you enough that you could do it? Like, or, you know what I mean? Like in, in finding that why now and landing on the engagement because it's externalized. I mean, it makes sense that you have to have something that kicks it off. That's not just like 
And it can't be, you know, I wanted a book contract. <laughs> well, there's also like, you know, and it also can't be, well, it was the culmination of several years of therapy and really, it, you know, I mean, which life is like that, right? It's those moments yeah. that add up to a single event, but the event is what people are looking for to understand. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's an oversimplification. You've got to pin it to one concrete event that the reader can grasp at once. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, did you, I mean, when you, when she was giving you suggestions and all of that was happening, did, did you, um, were there things you rejected, even though they might've worked narratively because they didn't feel right? You know, did you, did you, how, how did you kind of find the one that would work both narratively and felt true on some level? I don't remember wrestling with other potential ones. That was like, I mean, especially because that's like such a trope in American culture, you know, like, oh, you're getting married. It's going to be the happy ending of your life. But that was the one that was like, why don't you use that right away? And it, and I think like it, it does work and it, it could have worked had I been writing later after I got divorced. It just would have had less pressure on it in that way. <laughs> There's a woman, I can't remember who she is, but she's like one of those, like she's a big mommy blogger and I think she's kind of a bestseller. And she came out with a book about finding out that her husband was, had cheated on her like all over the place. Like that she had this whole sort of you know, kind of whatever sham thing and then how they worked through it and how, and they strengthened their marriage. And like, so the book is that arc. And then while she was on tour, she announced that they were getting divorced. So, and I don't even know if it impacted the book. You know what I mean? I, I think in the end, it seems like, well, a book is, after it's finished is a static thing and life. <laughs> well, that's yeah. what's fascinating about being a, mem a memoirist, as you are, and actually, and then we're going to talk about your novel, which is the, the book now, but the novel even has a lot of the feeling, the kind of intimacy of a memoir, and, and not only the first person, but then, it, as we'll discuss, it has these, these two third-person addressees. Second person. Second person, sorry, addressees. <laughs> Um, but, but you're talking about stripping down with this current work. And I mean, I just think it's fascinating to be, to be able and willing to pull a story out of the complexity of life and like, just what, what you learned about that. Like, are you naturally a, a storyteller of life or, you know, how? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've always, I, maybe you guys relate to this too. I have this distance from my own life. Sometimes I really like to step back and be an observer of it, even when I'm right in it. So, um, yeah, definitely. But it's, yeah, I think that fiction is a lot less perilous than memoir in that way. Yeah. So let's talk <laughs> about you don't, you don't have to prove that it ended up being your, your happy ending. And, and, <laughs> and with this book, I really, um, this the, the book that just came out, The Risk of Us, was I don't think I'll ever have a writing process like that again. It was really fast and really clear and not at all like the memoir before and the memoir I'm working on now. And in large part because I knew that the story was so contained, that it started when this little girl who was seven years old and in foster care comes to live with this couple and it's going to end there's supposed to be six months at least of this foster care limbo before they can finalize the adoption which uh the parents think going in like well of course we're going to finalize it as soon as we can right and then things get more complicated but i knew it was going to end when that either the adoption happened and they worked it out as a family or they didn't and it was going to go one way or another and that was going to happen within a few years of them coming together and the reader did not need to project 
either either into the past or the future of that. It was just going to be that slice. Yeah, and you didn't know which way it was going to go with the parents. Is that right? No, I actually didn't. But I had this really clear setup that that was going to be the turning point. And then I found this voice that I just kind of walked like a tightrope. And then I did have a sense, though, of where are the major testing points. And I love working in rhythms of three, you know, it's just like the magic fairy tale thing from uh, from fairy tale stories. And so I knew that if it was going to be one testing point, there's going to be a second testing point. And it's, there's going to be this rhythm of three in the ups and downs that they navigate. Yeah. Wow. And then how about in terms of the backstory, because there is, you know, there are these moments where we get glimpses into the relationship between the couple and how they, you know, met or their past and then her own past. And in fact, she is a, a memoirist, right? So she, I mean, she shares certain qualities with you or certain Yeah, I mean, she shares some really like obvious things that I would be completely disingenuous if I'm like, how could the reader, you know, how dare they notice that I have some things in common with this narrator? That would be a really false way to react. I mean, her, her father was murdered in her own home and she um, wrote a memoir about it. And I decided to use that because I felt like um, it was a really interesting added element that this woman who's trying to become a mother speaking this book to this little girl, she's gone through trauma herself, right. and she's coming in with this little extra bit of confidence. How much confidence should she have here? But she wants to have some hope that this is going to work, and she's thinking, because I've been through trauma and I know what panic tests feel like, I'm going to understand what's happening with this little girl when she goes into those panic attacks. And, you know, does that, does that help or not? Does it help enough? To me, that was such an interesting element that I wanted to keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I actually want to backtrack a little bit to your uh, elements of three. <laughs> um, you know, because I think of, you know, a, what a great way to sort of organize a sequence. One of the things that, so my background, I have some screenwriting background and, you know, there's a lot of pre-planning that goes into screenwriting and in a way that seems like a lot of people with novels don't want to do mm. um, <laughs> or acknowledge. <laughs> some people, well, it's like um, people divide. Yeah. So, but it's interesting because of course there are those long stretches between some of the, those pre-planning turning points, like the infamous middle. And so <laughs> um, thinking about that whole long middle section and, and using that model to build sequences. So is that what you would sort of do is like have a sequence and use that pattern of three to make a bigger turning point at the end because you sort of established a pattern in that sequence? Yeah, absolutely. So like it's building up to they think this is going to work. It's getting harder and harder. And then the early moment of the number one in the sequence is um, – the new, the parents who have just taken in this little girl, uh, take her to this huge family reunion at a, you know, super chaotic, high pressure, uh, water slide resort park with like 60 other relatives in Arizona. And they've only known her like three months at that point. And so, you know, it's, it's way too much. And the little girl freaks out and they have a moment um, where she's you know, bashing her head against a table leg in a panic attack. And the husband, who's um, a little bit weak from a medical condition, is, um, is really ailing. And they're feeling like, 
I can't, you know, okay, now can we really do this? So that was number one. And then they make it through, and I thought, okay, then there's going to be this number two testing point. You know, they're going to get a little closer, but then it's also going to escalate what's on the line for each of them. And then there's going to be this number three testing point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting what you say, though, about about novelists being um, hesitant to do that pre-planning or to talk about it or to, yeah. <laughs> Not all, right? It's just, it's just like, yeah, like some really love it, right? And some really hate whatever resistor you know and everyone just has their own it's just the same set of tools that we often use for revision I mean I actually came to planning because I didn't know how to revise yeah exactly I think that writers often like they really need to protect the organic just coming to understand who these characters are and what am I what am I really thematically working with in here why what is really obsessing me about this material and then they bring this all in in revision And, and I did that for the first I have a novel in a drawer and it took me seven years of working on it. And I was, you know, pretty resistant to thinking elementally with it, like you're describing. And I learned a lot from that. And when this idea came, it was really clear. And again, I don't think I'll ever, like, this isn't happening again for me with my current project. I don't think I'll ever have. But you know, what I notice (laughs) is that we're talking about two memoirs. And one novel there. Yeah. And I right. feel like it may be that you just, you know, novels are easy peasy compared to <laughs> well, memoirs. Well, the, the novel. Well, I know, but she learned, right? right? She just said she learned. And so. <laughs> I, I think you're right, though, because actually this goes back to your question about backstory in the novel, Elizabeth, and there's not very much of it. And so I, when I wrote the first draft in eight months, um, it was my working rule was just as little backstory as possible, only what's absolutely essential. And I didn't have this big impetus to include more, in part because it wasn't about me. Like, I didn't have anything on the line that I wanted to prove either to the reader or to myself about myself or, like, things from my life that were precious that I wanted to put on display because it wasn't wasn't me so it was easy to be that spare and then the revision process afterwards became having editors tell me okay well, we, need, we I need to understand this about this person here I need to understand this about that person here and then very surgically adding the backstory yeah but now back in memoir I mean it's I I love this piano player from the alley so much I want to include everything about him and the period of my life that it's covering is my early 30s which were so just fun and exciting and I want to get everything in <laughs> yes very different yeah 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 it's so that's such a such a challenge Did, were, so were there other ways that you deliberately excluded yourself in making this a novel I mean uh so that it you know I don't know like that it so you I mean you used parts of yourself what what distinguishes it sort of from your memoir process or, you know um, well, I think, I mean, it helps that I, when I started to write it, even though I was using things from my own experience, I was so clear that this is a novel. And I had models in front of me. I, I guess we'll get to this with the stealing part. But, you know, I worked so closely with reading Jenny Alpha's Department of Speculation. I love that book. And, yeah, and learning a lot from that. So um, I knew going in that the way I would handle the material is that this book is its own space with its own internal reality. 
I will not enter it until, I mean, even if I'm like working in my car that day because that's how hectic my day is and that's the only way I can get in my, you know, 30 or 40 minutes of working on on this day. I'm going to really reset. I'm going to, you know, do these rituals to leave my life behind and to step very carefully into the space of the book. And then once I'm in there, whether something corresponds to my life outside of the book or not, does not even, I'm not even going to notice it. While I'm working on it, I'm not even going to be aware of what might line up or what might not line up. So is hiding in your car part of the way you <laughs> lock out the rest of your life? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a parent, yeah. so, and, uh, you know, my, my husband and I share household duties 50-50. We um, split our household needs of income down the line, and we contribute to the budget 50-50. That just works for me because that way I know that when I want to go do writing time, I have earned it. I don't have to explain myself to anybody. These are the household expenses, and I pitched in my half. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm writing. It's like there might be a book in this too, right? Like, this is going to be like so a, exciting and important. Well, I just you know I just sort of love the you know you mentioned the rituals and just thinking about those those ways that it is really hard when you have and we have a very uh, like there, I have, you know, professional clients that I do stuff for. I volunteer quite a bit. I, you know, so there's a we lot have, of, we have two kids and, and yet none of it's really a consistent schedule. So I love the idea of having those ritual pieces that really help you mark one set of activities and your writing life. Wait, can you talk about what those rituals are at all? Or are you willing to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, one is, you know, turning off the internet. So I have to get to a place where I either don't have a Wi-Fi connection or I use Mac Freedom on my computer. Um, at my, I actually do have an office because I teach writing classes now up there. And that came with this a little writing office for myself. And luckily, the internet is never working. <laughs> And I just don't sound like my landlady. And so and that's cool. And so then I, if I want to check things, I have to be on my cell phone and I have to walk way out and down the hall and like feel self-conscious that people think I'm addicted to my cell phone and I'm standing in the hall. And, and those things tend to be a deterrent, even though I do it. I, you know, I still do it like every half hour and walk down the hall and check my cell phone. But, <laughs> but it makes you exercise. Well, also every half hour versus every minute is a significant difference. Yeah, it makes a difference for me. Um, and then I have these kind of talismanic things that I keep near me. Um, certain quotes, some of them that I hung on my bulletin board, um, a, a little clay pendant that means a lot to me. And kind of bring those objects out and get back in touch with them. Um, and then I had some pieces of music that I could um, pause and listen to. And um, the music had a certain... Um, tone and I mean even like a, a spiritual quality to it that would get me back into the book mm, nice that's beautiful yeah um does every book have a soundtrack <laughs> I don't know this one did yeah <laughs> yeah actually I mean, yeah all three of them have yeah nice <laughs> how about your experience I love writing with music, I have to say. Yeah, I, I, I write in a, usually in a cafe, so I have just the noise. And they play music, which is, which is fun. They play. But, you know, I mostly am tuning it all out. When mm -hmm. I, but the, the I'm just so emotionally moved by music. Like, I physically, like, music, yes. Like, I could sit and just 
you know, we did some interviews with your um, sister's mother. Yeah, who's like right, right. And concert pianist. It was a concert oh. pianist. And as we were interviewing her, I just had the deep desire to just lie down under her piano, which would have been awkward. <laughs> but to just be there in the music. So music for me is a huge thing. So Mm -hmm. But um, Elizabeth, actually, you mentioning writing in a cafe reminded me that I wrote most of the first draft in this book in a cafe because it was before I had my own writing studio. Uh huh. I'm wondering if you had the same problem. Like, I had to go around and find the right cafe because of the who's there and the volume levels and all of that. And then I knew a place where I wasn't going to bump into a bunch of people I knew, right? Right. <laughs> That's what factor for you. It's hard because we're in a small town too, but, yeah. um, but, uh, and I actually do cafe writing too with, with a few friends. So we meet like usually on Monday mornings and, and write together in a cafe. Yeah. You guys are kind of like a writing bullies. Like no one comes to bother them. <laughs> well, Ellen, the my, my, my writing buddy, Ellen Sussman is very good at just like, like if somebody comes to join us like late, you know, if she's in the middle of writing, like she'll say hi really quickly, but boom, like right back in. So she's been a good role model for, you know, being nice, but like I'm writing right now, even if mm -hmm. I'm in the middle of it. Yeah. But yeah. And now I have my cafe that I love and, and then I think it triggers my brain. Like, oh, I'm here. I'm going to write because I'm here. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's part of the ritual. Yeah, it was for me. Like, once I get to Java Johns, this is what I came to do. And I only use this place and this time for writing. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask how many cafes there are in Nevada City. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's what's so great. It's like this town of 3,000, but there's like four or five. Not many. Do you have that with schools, too? Like, we're in Sebastopol, and there are so many, like, charter schools. And there's just so many schools. It feels like there's a school for every child. Yeah, we have that too. Yeah. <laughs> but mine is at the least fancy is the non-charter school that happens to be right next to our house. But yeah, yeah. it's nice. an town and there's a bookstore, which is crucial. Yes. Right in the middle of all the cafes and it's a great bookstore called Harmony Books. And, you know, you can just go in there and like have your sanctuary time and yeah. feel so human again. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, Yay, independent booksellers. Yes, yeah, we have ours definitely. too, so... It's sad to say it is time for steal this. <laughs> I feel like there's oh. much more I want to talk to you about, but um, I, I feel like I want to make sure I said that your novel is the risk of us, which we'll talk about again at the very end. But, um, and that I, and I also wanted to say that I, I read it in a day. I mean, I picked it up and it was just compulsively read. I mean, all I wanted to do was read it. And, um, and that, and, and, and I don't either. There was a small fire in the kitchen, <laughs> but I totally took care of it. <laughs> While she wrapped it up. And, so. and, it, and, it, and Jenny Ophel's book was similar to me, and it's interesting because it doesn't necessarily have, I mean, it does have the trappings of what you think of as propulsive plot in the sense that there's this very high stakes decision that's going to be made about this family and this little girl. And, you know, so, I mean, it, it does really have that. But at the same time, you know, it's this, it's the texture of the thought and kind of the dailiness of those that, you know, it's not car chases kind of plot and not that I'm, that's exactly what usually pulls me in, but I mean, there was just something about it that was, it was so thoughtful. It, it really had a lot of kind of interiority or thought process or the kind of things that you might not, one might not associate with, I, you know, I'm not going, I can't stop right now. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I, I'm just, for me, sort of curious about, and I, not that you would know the answer exactly, but about like sort of what makes 
this kind of book feel as propulsive as, you know, a book where you're just like, I can't put it down because there's a big cliffhanger, mm-hmm. you know? What I mean? mm-hmm. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but congratulations for doing it. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I kind of wish I had the answer. <laughs> I, I think it's, um, I mean, for me, one thing that was crucial in the writing of, of The Risk of Us that I think makes it work is that um, I, I was in touch. I could only have written it at that moment because it was a moment where I was in touch with the reality that this family doesn't know which way it's going to go. Right, that they're, you know, if if they make, and that's the thing, it's like, <laughs> you can be on the other side of the ending, and it feels like, oh, well, it was always going to go that way, and then, you you know, you bring that into how you write, but right. I just, being in that charge, and just moment to moment, they honestly don't know which way this is going to go, and I think that's what makes it suspenseful, even when the things, like you're saying, isn't, I mean, it's not that someone's hanging off a cliff. But, you know, what, whether or not this little girl is going to have to move on to a seventh or eighth foster home and what her fate is going to be and how are these would-be parents going to live with the guilt of failing her if that's what it comes to. Yeah. And you know, the other thing, I mean, I always talk about um, Emma Donahue's room. I don't know if you've read that. Or oh, something. I haven't. I want to. Yeah, but yeah, but anyway, and you know, it's this kind of a highly exceptional situation with a, you know, a kid, a kid who's born into a, his mother was kidnapped and he, they're living in this room kidnapped. And, and yet it's so resonantly about all parenting. Mm-hmm. And I feel like here's this, you know, very specific, and especially challenging situation, but, um, but it also feels really resonant, you know, even like with, you know, giving birth and having this new person suddenly taking up all your time and space and being like, well, wait a minute, am I really signed on forever? (laughs) You know what I mean? There's maybe not somebody standing there going like, here's your other option, but it's, you know, it's very, it's, it's, I mean, I just think a lot of the themes of parenting come out, even if the specifics are different. Oh, thanks. That makes me feel like I did all right. Thank you. Really, it's wonderful. So, amateur poets borrow for professional poets steal. What have you come across in your wanderings or readings that you would like to take and make your own? So, um, would you like to start or would you like one of us to start? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, I, I just actually read an article about Terry Gilliam, who just came out with this movie about Don Quixote. Do you remember what it's mm-hmm. called? I don't know. The movie that I'm familiar with is the one about how it wasn't working. Yeah. So like so like mm-hmm. in 2002, there was a documentary made about how they'd been trying to make this movie. So for, funny. For, you know, 15 years. Lost in La Mancha. Yeah. And, um, and how, you know, they'd had different people attached and then funding and then things had dropped. They'd even started filming for like a week somewhere. They were in that area in Spain, but then it turned out it was also a place where um, the Spanish military were like doing Do their flyovers yeah, so and stuff. Like, they had to give up after a week, you know, and they just had, and they had like, like William Hurt. And another, like, French actor were both attached at different points and both died, you know, two years ago. And it was actually dedicated to them. So, anyway, it's just this movie that took him, like, 30 years to make. His daughter was one of the producers, and she's 41 now, but she was 11 when he started. Anyway, so, you know, right? So, are are you stealing a 30-year project? No, I really hope not. (laughs) But I am sort of stealing that, there's a huge 
process to creating something and that, you know, something that like is sort of this miserable failure, you know, for 29 years is suddenly this tenacious stick to it, get it done. Like this is, this is such an important idea. You never give up on it moment when it's like debuting at con, right? Like, so that, that line between I'm just flailing and failing and never finishing and like, look at me. I stuck with this for 30 years is a fine line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I want to feel like the, right? the permission and the encouragement and um yeah, the I tenacity. Don't know. The tenacity, sheer tenacity. Yeah. So it's not exactly a craft point, but I think it's a an important one for all of us. So it's it's so profound that as you were talking about it, I was like, oh, I just have this little craft point. I love like, craft. That's the real wisdom right there. <laughs> no, I love craft points too. I just yeah. So so tell us your craft point. <laughs> uh, well, um, I, I'm probably mispronouncing her name. I just realized that I've never met her, Jenny Ophiel, oh, uh, Jenny Opel. I think I, her editor at Grey Wolf on a previous book corrected me once that it's Jenny Ophiel, but I'm probably still saying it wrong. Um, but I mean, I, I read her book about six times while I was writing mine. I also drew on um, Marguerite Duras, The Lover, and some of Maggie Nelson's books were very influential on me. But what I stole from Jenny was using point of view as an enactment of the story conflict. And, you know, she has a, a point of view. It's also in her book starts out second person of the, the narrator speaking to her husband, although that kind of drops off and you kind of just get absorbed in the story and forget about that second person. But does she move book. into talking about him in third? I think she does, right? And then that's what happens. So after in the book, um, he has an affair and she's so shocked about it. Then it goes into third person because she's so, the narrator's so separated from herself and she's in shock. And from him, in a way, and, right? Yeah. Shocked. And then when it comes, uh, when they, when she works through that shock, it goes back to the first person. Um, so for me, I, I stole, you know, having this narrator who speaks in the second person to her husband and to the little girl. And then the, the question is, how is she going to go from having a relationship between herself and the husband and herself and the little girls all coming together in one relationship. How is it going to go from speaking to you, to you, to a way of speaking that holds all of us? Um, so I just totally stole that. And then and she's like really, circling the word us on the cover here, right? Yeah. The risk of us. That, and that took a long time to land on, but the point of view was always there from the first line. Okay. And then, so I felt really honored because I've never met Jenny and I, I reached out to her through her agent that she read the book for me and, and gave me her blessing. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. That made me feel like stealing is what artists do. And she yes. has that too. <laughs> Yeah, I love that too, because Debbie Lascar, who is a friend of mine and who was also episode 89 um, on Storymaker Show, but she was really influenced by that book and also especially by um, House on Mango Street. But, you know, it was like this. And I think, um, yeah, just interesting to get to get permission and craft technique. And well, and one thing I want to say is I think a lot, again, looking at those pieces of what's intuitive versus what's intentional in, in certainly in the drafting process. And I think a lot of people I've seen just so many books at this point where there's so many points of view, but I don't get a sense that always that the people who are writing that way necessarily know why they're making that choice. 
And sometimes, you know, we've got great examples about people just following their intuition and, and then the answer comes. But I, I really especially love that intentionality, that this is a tool that can do this thing and that's why I'm choosing it. Yeah. And I think that's just, for me, being a very, you know, my brain spins out in so many directions, having very concrete things is very helpful. So um, I really like that. Yeah. Do you have oh, this? Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say thank you because it'll probably never happen to me again. <laughs> <laughs> you keep saying that. Stop saying Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's just how you do novels. So that's all. Okay. Now, now right now that you've yeah. learned. Now that you've learned, it's how you, you do novels. <laughs> um, and actually, I actually already mentioned my steal. This was the person who was doing 100 videos in 100 days. Oh, right. And having low-stakes art that you do over time and so that's really what I'm going to be focusing on for the next few weeks is low stakes art <laughs> I so I mean I so agree with that the low stakes keeping in touch with it every day and yeah yeah so Rachel so if okay so you you have an event tonight but tonight is going to be in the past so people are listening <laughs> to this next on Tuesday um is there stuff coming up or where where can people find you your book and all of that not your actual um, address, but tell <laughs> <laughs> you the, the store I live across the street from in the city. Um, so I'm going to be in uh, Asheville on the 14th. Okay, this will have probably come out by then. I'm going to be in New York at McNally Jackson Books on Wednesday, April 17th at 7 p.m. Okay. And then I'm going to be at, in Seattle at uh, Third Place Books, Ravenna. Um, on Good Friday, um, interesting day to have a reading, at, I think at 7. Um, and then I'm going to Book Soup in Los Angeles on April 22nd. Great. Well, you're on, you're on tour. <laughs> That's so exciting. Did you go on tour with your memoir? I did just a California West Coast thing. So, um, yeah, this is my first time, like, going all around the country this time. That's so awesome. <laughs> And one thing we didn't get to touch on, but I'm sort of deadly curious about, so perhaps you'll come on again in the future, is about dance criticism and mm. sort of how that fits into mm. all these other kinds of writing and, you know, because I think generally writing is about paying attention to the world and making something from that. And of course, doing criticism, there's frameworks that you're looking at the work through. And so it's a little interesting. I'd love to learn more about that at some point. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll plan another one. <laughs> either, either when the memoir comes out or earlier. Maybe when the paperback comes out. <laughs> Thank you so, so much yes. for meeting with us and chatting with us. And it was wonderful. Oh, thanks, guys. This has been amazing and so fun, and um, I wish we could keep talking. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, yes definitely. So um, pick up the risk of us to our listeners. It's just a wonderful And just a reminder, we've also got our raffle page up, so oh, yes. Storymaker Show forward slash raffle to help us get a an end-of-show tagline. Yeah, we're working on what do we say? Do you have any line of inspiration you want to say to our listeners who are going to Previously, go it was, you know, write your tushies off. And that, <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say to yourself when you're launching it? 
<laughs> or your oh, write your tissues off is great. <laughs> right, I, it's kind of actually every time I write to my agent, I always want to put this line in there about how I've been working my butt off or working my ass off. I'm always like trying to find it, like what should be the right word for that that anatomical part. It's tushies. <laughs> All right, we've got the thumbs up from Rachel on write your tushies off. Excellent. <laughs> 